On this week's show, we take it to the street, Wall Street that is, and get the inside story from one of the biggest auto industry bulls in New York, John Murphy from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by Borg Warner. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine This Week, where today's topic is all going to be about looking at the automotive industry with a Wall Street perspective. And that's because my special guest today is John Murphy, the Senior Automotive Analyst with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. John, great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today are Joanne Muller from Forbes and Greg Gardner from the Detroit Free Press. Great having the both of you here. Thank Good you. To be here. John, this automotive business in the United States has been on a tear like we haven't seen. It's been about eight years, I think, almost of constant uh, expansion. Some people are saying, okay, 2017, 2018, there ought to be a downturn. We know that there's going to be a correction. You're saying, hey, wait a minute. You're saying in 2018, we could see the SAR, the the seasonally annualized rate, going at maybe 20 million units. you got to fill me in on this because that's a huge number and completely contradictory to what most others are saying. Yeah, you know, we've had this uh, this this idea in place really since the summer of 09 that we'd see a long, a long cycle because the industry saw such an incredible extreme downturn, basically a three standard deep event on the downside. And what we're seeing is what has been a very good replacement or scrappage uh, replacement cycle that's, that's been in force that is still got a number of years left to go. I mean, we look at the average age of a vehicle, 11 and a half years old, when you look at the distribution of the vehicles that are 11 plus years old or older, it's never been greater. It's almost, it's a little bit better than half the entire fleet um, at this point. There's still a case to be made that a replacement cycle uh, is, is still uh, in force. And more importantly, when you look at the miles driven in the United States, they're spiking up in a way that we have actually never seen before. Actually, the latest data in February, the miles driven were up 5.6% after being up almost 4% last year. So the demand for travel utility being miles driven is reaching all-time highs at the same time as our fleet is incredibly old. It's supporting uh, used vehicle prices near all-time highs, which means that people need more cars um, to drive those 3.2 million drive miles that we're trying to drive. So we're looking for about 18.2 this year, 19 million units uh, next year, and about 20 million units in two 2018 before the industry catches up with the supply of vehicles on the road relative to that demand for travel utility. You know, but John, it seems like everybody assumes that the downturn is just around the corner. You look at the stocks in particular of uh, the domestic automakers, Ford and GM, they're just stuck in neutral. And Tesla, meanwhile, is, uh, you know, what, 150-something a share, right? Uh, so, so my question is, what, what can uh, G, GM and Ford are being run as, best, as, as good as they've ever been, and yet their stock is just not moving? Well, the, the skepticism and, and the overhang from, from the downturn still persists, unfortunately, in the stocks. And if we were to look at these companies at this point, they're probably at one of their um, strongest points uh, in history from product, balance sheet, management discipline, pricing, um, everything is lining up pretty much correctly for these companies. And you're now gotten to a point where they're both paying almost a 5% dividend yield. Yeah. You have Ford putting out a supplemental dividend of a billion dollars in the first quarter of this year. You have GM with a $9 billion buyback in, you know, going on right now as, as we speak. Um, so they're doing everything they really need to do. I think there's just a big concern that at some point the cycle turns, they lose the discipline, and we go through the same uh, mess that we went through in 08 and 09 uh, all over again. 
Doesn't seem like that's certainly the case. And the industry may have to prove out through this next downturn that it's not going to lose its, its discipline again. But by our measures and you know our multiples, these stocks are generally very attractive um, and are very, are very interesting. But there's not a lot of interest from investors because there's a constant fear that things are going to fall off. It's very frustrating for us. And I think it's very frustrating for the companies as well because there's not a whole lot more that they can do right. Do, do you think that the stock is just not going anywhere until after we come out of whenever the, the trough will be? You know, it's the current environment um, from inve- you know, investor sentiment in the current environment is, is, incredibly, is incredibly skeptical. I think if we see the kind of earnings power that we saw coming through last year and then once again in this first quarter and this return of capital coming to shareholders, the sentiment will grind higher, the earnings will Uh, continue to grow. And even at low multiples, um, without multiple expansion, you could see these stocks grind higher. So I do think, you know, there is an opportunity over the next 12 months and maybe even over the next couple of years for the stocks to go higher. But sort of the euphoria that you would need to return the multiples back to anything that is normal, right, they're hardly depressed right now, may take, you know, a long time. Now, um, to their credit, most of the major automakers understand that there's a wave of change headed their way. Um, they're making major investments into uh, ride sharing, car sharing. Um, how does Wall Street view those in that normally um, investors require fairly short-term um, evidence of a, a competitive return on investments? You know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting question because some of the newer entrants uh, into the market are not held to the same financial standards that the traditional auto companies are. So if you... Did I hear you say Tesla? Yeah. Oh, okay. If, now. If, if, you, if you look at some of the other tech companies and even, even, in, even the ride-sharing um, companies, um, in general, there's a belief that these companies will be much, much larger than they are in the long term. So they are uh, held to a standard of you know, executing and delivering um, on the product, but not necessarily on the, the financial results. And they do have the ability to raise capital um, in a way that other companies don't. So burn cash to dr- grow the business and raise capital. Um, if you look at GM, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, Honda, Nissan, all the major auto manufacturers, I think they are doing a very good job of future-proofing their businesses and staying on top of all this stuff, some, you know, in some cases making these, these investments um, in adjacent companies or partners, um, but they don't have the same luxury because they are criticized and held to a different standard um, than, those other, than those sort of other new tech companies. So it is, there is a real competitive uh, you know, advantage that some of these new entrants have because their cost of capital and investors' willingness to fund them uh, is a little bit different than it is with the traditional companies. John, I understand what you're saying because especially when you look at GM Ford and Chrysler, now FCA, it's, it's been like uh, Pavlov ringing the bell and the dogs getting hungry. The car companies have trained Wall Street not to trust them because of all the problems in the past. But some suppliers are doing pretty good. They have much better profit margins. Wall Street's treating them a whole lot better with higher multiples. Why is it? Why, why is it the distinction between what the suppliers are doing versus the traditional car companies? Well, I mean, I would, I would certainly argue in, to some degree that the suppliers are also um, being uh, disrespected in, the, in their multiples, too, and there's some real upside in those stocks. But the relative, um, the relative lack of belief is much higher at the automaker level. It is, it is, it is certainly true. Um, you know, I think as you look at some of the suppliers, they are viewed as 
partners that may help solve some of the issues that the automakers face going forward. Um, and they have been since really the creation of the tier one industry as we know it really in the early 90s. It really hasn't been around quite as long as everybody thinks it thinks it has. Um, and they have over time helped the automakers innovate and deliver better and better product over time. So I do think that there is a, a belief that some of these suppliers will help solve the problems that the automakers uh, need to solve going forward. And, you know, for, you know, Every vehicle, you're still going to need seats. You're still probably going to need a wiring harness. You're still going to need wheels, theoretically, for, for a really long time. So there's parts of the car that, you know, as long as you're executing fairly well, um, you can make some pretty good money at. I think there's a big concern that the automakers might get dis, um, disintermediated with their, with, their, with their customer, and that's really where the risk um, lies for the automakers. Well, one uh, gray cloud that's been pointed out by um, certainly some of the rating agencies is um, the rising um, delinquency rate on um, new car loans and used car loans, and that um, given that and the fact that there's going to be an increase in the number of vehicles coming back off of lease and then going to auction, that, that could depress used car values. How do you assess that risk? Well, um, there's always a risk. Uh, there's always many risks in the industry, so we take everything seriously. And when we look at uh, the financing environment, um, if you look back to uh, 2006 and 2007 and originations um, and how they were set up uh, back then and where we are right now, it's a fairly similar environment on credit scores um, and on the way that the consumer is evaluated. So if we look back then and, and look what happened in 08 and 09, and there was no masterful or widespread defaults or delinquencies that really got out of control in auto loans, um, you could think as a chief risk officer that maybe going back to that level and maybe even a little bit further might be rational to produce uh, profits. So I think that what we're seeing right now is a ratcheting up to a, a normalcy and not something that is wildly out of bounds with, with history. Um, it is true that rates really only have one direction to go from where they are right now, but probably not up so quickly. Um, so rates rising might be a little bit more uh, of a risk. But as you look at this, you know, 1% rate, uh, rise in rates or 100 basis point increase in, in rates basically adds about 17 bucks to a monthly payment that's in the, more, the mid $400 range. So I think you need to see rates ratchet up in a big way to depress uh, auto demand. Um, but all told, I mean, at some point in the future, 2018 or 2019, when we see the cycle turning, we do think used vehicle pricing uh, will come under pressure. Lending, you know, might see um, even greater delinquencies and, and defaults. Um, that'll create the other side of, of the auto cycle. Do, do you, uh, would you recommend Tesla stock? <laughs> Well, we John's have, one we of have, the biggest bears I've have, ever read have, on Tesla. We have, we, have an un, we have an underperformed because I think when you look at the prospects for earnings and cash flow at the company, um, they don't necessarily match up where the, where the stock is, is currently trading. I do think it's a very interesting story because you are seeing innovation and a catalyst that's driving the industry forward um, on powertrain and other things like you know autonomy uh, in the vehicle. The industry is doing a pretty good job of that on their own. So um, you know I think there's a lot of value in what's going on there. Ultimately, I don't believe it's going to drive a tremendous amount of value from where the stock is right now for, for, for shareholders. But I mean, the innovation um, there is, is, is questionable whether it's really that you know, advanced or not that advanced, but it is uh, sort of ringing the alarm bell for a lot of other companies that they need to focus on fuel economy and, and powertrain technology in a way that they haven't in the past. And maybe that is through uh, you know, electric cars, maybe it's through downsized turbocharged 
um, you know, hybrids, or maybe it's ultimately the fuel cell, um, you know, powertrain that, that ultimately solves the problem. But they're really focused on this now, and that's you know helping sort of needle them and, and drive drive them forward. I've got to believe that Tesla's got you scratching your head, though. You've been a bear since the beginning, since day one. I mean, you, you had valuations at one point, I want to say, of like $45 a share. Boom, it shot up to $250 a share. I think right now it's it's in the $200 range or thereabouts. Do you, you go, don't these people realize what's going on, or do you just think, or maybe I just don't understand this process? Well, I, we, we, we often have a lot of doubts about how we, how we think about things, so we always reassess about how, you know, how, we, how we're thinking about things. But I think when you, when you, when you look at the, this company, there is a, um, people are looking through the capital intensity uh, of the industry. And you know, the idea that they're making you know, 50 to 100,000 cars uh, this year, I think the target is technically 80 to 90,000, but 50 to 100,000 and have a target of 500,000 in, in 2018. Now they pulled that forward two years. Um, that is, that's interesting. And if you poured billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of capital into that, maybe you could ultimately get there. But you are putting that kind of money up to get to those those targets, which means that you might not make a lot of profit, and you certainly will have subpar returns. So, you know, the question is, you know, can you do something, or and and will you have financial, you know, the financial benefits of, of doing it? And that's highly questionable right now with this company. I mean, they just raised their capex target from 1.5 billion to two and a quarter billion this year, which means their their free cash flow targets of of getting to, to positive this year. Are totally off the table, and they're probably off the table for the next two or three years. So, it's you know it's kind of a tough thing to put place a lot of value on a company that's burning a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, efficient use of capital, um, one of the arguments Mary Barra made a year ago when um, a group of investors wanted GM to buy back more stock, which they have since done. Um, her argument was, well, we're getting a lot better at, at how we spend this money. Now, your study points out that the um, annual average um, new vehicle launch for the next four years is going to be somewhere around 58 versus 38 in the prior almost 20 years. So isn't that evidence that the industry is getting better at spending all this money? Well, I, I think it, it, it's evidence that they're getting much more efficient at, at spending the money and getting better returns for it, whether it be in ROI, but also in, in vehicle in nameplates and, and introducing more new vehicles with better and better technology. So, yes, I do think it's, a, it's an example of, of leveraging common platforms and global platforms to produce more and more good product off the, of those platforms. It's, it's differentiated. So the industry is getting better and better um, with their product cadence and their replacement rates which should drive consumer demand. It's better for consumers. It ultimately will be better for, for the economy. Um, so no, they are getting much more efficient with their capital. What do you think of uh, the stock buyback? Has that really helped GM at all? You mentioned that they've got $9 billion on the table, and they're, as Joanne said, their stock is stuck in neutral. Listen, I think the management team is doing a, taking a very disciplined approach to returning capital to shareholders and investing in the business where, where it's necessary. So they're doing that in a very disciplined way. They're taking advantage of the fact that the stock is incredibly undervalued at this point and deploying capital um, you know, as they can, as they generate the cash flow, they're gonna be buying back the shares. And there's a case to be made, um, you know, if the industry holds up very well, the GM will be in the ballpark of buying back almost 10% of the stock on an annual basis for a number of years. So um, it hasn't helped the stock yet, but over time, as I mentioned before, as the earnings grind higher, even if you have low multiples, there is the case that the stock can actually grind higher along with those earnings, and your earnings per share get better the fewer shares you have. So the buyback should work at some point, but it is um, almost like we're looking at uh, sort of a Rodney Dangerfield moment here where the industry <laughs> can't get any respect, and it deserves it. Now, back to the 
discrepancy in the way um, the investment world looks at technology companies versus manufacturers. Um, one difference is that what we think of as technology companies, Apple, Google, use contract manufacturing. Um, do you think that we'll see a point where Tesla may look to someone else to do their, to put their cars together? Well, there's a lot of challenges that Tesla is facing right now, and manufacturing, to their point, is, is probably the, the, the single biggest uh, challenge and hurdle that they're facing. There are some great contract manufacturers out there in the world. Some companies like Magnus Dyer could probably have uh, this factory up and running in you know, the space of a few months, maybe you know, six months at, at, at most, and, and, ha and help them out in a huge way. Um, but there is a general belief, or seems to be a general belief uh, internally, that they, they need to do this on, on their own and want to do it on their own. Whether it's a lack of respect, or a difference of opinion, or, or a different strategy, it, it's kind of unclear, but they're not using this contract manufacturing in a way that I think would get them up and running and help them. Uh, help them tremendously. I do think that you know, as you as you as you think about the the industry in total, um, there is kind of there's been this concern that you would see companies like Apple and Google run a contract manufacturing process, kind of like Apple does with with Foxconn, uh, that could potentially devalue their participation in the whole value equation of delivering an auto to to the consumer. And I, I don't think that's going to happen because I do think there's a tremendous amount of brand equity in, in a lot of brands and in the process. And I do think as we see these new entrants, um, potential new entrants entering the industry, they're going to be uh, partnering with the, the incumbents. And that seems to be the, the MO so far. John, we're seeing GM and Ford especially talk about transforming into mobility companies. Automotive companies still, but becoming mobility companies. Mark Fields likes to talk about how, I, if I remember the numbers right, there's something like uh, $2.3 trillion in revenue generated by the automakers of the world, but there's $5.4 trillion in mobility services. And he sees that as a big pot of gold that the company could find a whole new market for itself getting into. What's the Wall Street view? What do you think about this? It does, does mobility services or do mobility services represent this big pot of gold for the industry? Well, I think it's an important um to remember that the industry always has been a mobility industry. And, and the idea of getting a consumer from A to B is really the basic functionality of what um, you know, the industry supplies to a demand for travel utility. So I think his view of that is, makes a tremendous amount of sense. And the idea that either through car sharing um, or ride sharing um, you know, uh, systems or other advances that, that may occur over time, Reducing the uh, hurdle to getting in a car and driving a mile might create more mobility and create more opportunity for the, for, for the automakers over time that might even be larger than the pie that they're looking at uh, at this point. But yes, I mean, I do think there's a greater opportunity to participate in the entire ownership experience of the vehicle well beyond the point of sale. And I think when you look at the automakers as we know them right now and the suppliers as we generally know them right now, the tier one guys, you are looking at a part of the value chain that tends to stick to the original point of sale and doesn't participate in everything that goes on beyond it. And the margins, returns, and risk profile of everything beyond that point of sale tends to be generally better than the initial point of sale. So I do think that that makes a tremendous amount of sense, and they're, they're heading down that path. And you know, kudos to them for recognizing that. What do you think about uh, uh, Fiat Chrysler and Sergio uh, Marchionis uh, 
Confessions of a Capital Junkie. He basically says, you know, we can't afford to keep putting all this money into all this stuff individually. We've definitely got to team up. So far, he hasn't found a dance partner. Well, um, you know, it, it's it's a tough dance, um, especially when you're looking at a six billion dollar or six billion euro um, net debt position to get somebody to, to dance with you. It's a, you know, it's <laughs> it's a tough time to find a partner with that. Um, you know, that said, I do think their product plan going forward is very ambitious and and very credible if they if they can fund it and could ultimately be very attractive to another partner if they can execute on this plan over the next few years, getting ultimately to sort of net debt neutral um, and and having all this product out there uh, would put them in a much better position to find a partner at, at the dance. Uh, you know, that said, they're going to go through a, a tough time over the next few years of balancing, fixing the balance sheet and investing in all this great product. And it's going to be kind of hard for them to do to do both. And there's going to be a balancing act on both sides of the equation um, that I think they'll probably do a pretty good job of. They've done a masterful job of, of working through some very tough situations over the, la- over the last few years. So we'll see where they go. But I think when you look at this, it is the company uh, that investors highlight as, as the riskiest uh, in, in the industry because of its current you know, balance sheet position and the need to reinvest in the product both of which the company fully recognizes, but I also think so do all the dance partners, so that's why they haven't stepped up uh, to ask them to dance yet. John, you're right. I mean, it's that six billion euro debt that everybody is, uh, is afraid of. Do you think that FCA would sell off assets? For example, it has the supplier company Magneti Morelli. It has Camo. Uh, it has other things that it could do to, to get more cash and pay down debt. Do you think that it would resort to something like that? Well, it started to, right? You had the, the IPO of Ferrari and the spinoff. So there was, there was uh, you know, an asset sale and separation there. So they, they started to do that. And I think there might be opportunities uh, to do that down the line with Magneti Morelli and some of these other uh, smaller suppliers. Um, the valuations on suppliers where they are right now probably don't make it the most attractive time to sell, sell these assets. Uh, so I think, you know, at this point, they wouldn't realize what they really should for those asset sales. So I think they're keeping that as a card to potentially play down the line, but it's not something they'll play right now. But yes, I do think they'll, they'll consider that down the line. Um, and potentially, depending on where the cycle goes, they may think of other opportunities of selling certain brands off um, or relationships off to other, other partners in the industry as opposed to the wholesale company. Your uh, Car Wars study looks at future product for all of the uh, automakers. Um, what do you see for uh, Fiat Chrysler now that they've decided they're not going to sell, uh, they're not going to build cars in, in the U.S.? Are they getting out of the car business, or what's your theory on that? Well, it's, you know, it's a great question, and there's a lot of debate over that. Um, when we were going through the study this year, we had initially thought that the, the Dart and the 200 actually would be out of the product portfolio and not be reintroduced over the next four years. As we kind of went through this, it became more obvious that that was still part of their plan is to have those small cars um, in the product portfolio uh, with the help of a contract manufacturer um, or a partner that would actually manufacture these cars. To, at this point, we don't have necessarily an idea of who that, that partner is ultimately going to be, but they're looking for one right now, and they would prefer to make crossovers and trucks where they're making a lot more money uh, than these cars, but they still want to have these cars in the, in the portfolio. So they're holding fast to that, to that plan. Over time, I think there's some risk that those do fall out of the product pipeline or in the product portfolio, and they focus on crossovers and trucks, which are a lot more profitable, and they might need to. Well, it sounds like a good idea while those are in demand, uh, trucks and crossovers, but um, should gas prices go up, should other things happen, suddenly they may be caught flat-footed with no cars. 
a, a, and that's and that's probably why they're going to try to keep them in the portfolio. I mean, a full product suite, depending on the the economic environment and the oil price environment, is is very important for an automaker because if you if you have the wrong product and are selling none of it. <laughs> you're in a lot of you're in a lot of you're in a lot of trouble. So I mean, the market can swing. We can see, you know, we've seen on economic cycles, we've seen a, a mix shift incredibly down in 08 and 09, and with gas prices spiking up or down, you see huge mix swings. So you do have to have a. You, it is advisable to have a full product suite to offer to the consumer so that you can work in any environment. Now, uh, General Motors has a lot riding later this year and early next year on the launch of the Bolt. Um, and to a lesser degree, the, the new Volt is doing better, you know, the year-over-year year comparisons are, are up. But at a time when we still have moderate gas prices um, and, you know, people are very comfortable, you know, they care about fuel economy, but that's not the number one priority. What, what's your outlook on the Volt? Well, um, you know, as we look at it, um, I think the Leaf was selling between around twenty or thirty thousand, you know, units, and I think that's probably a good way to think of potentially, uh, you know, the the, the volume uh, on the Bolt. I do think, as you look at uh, both the Volt and the Bolt at GM, um, you're looking at you know powertrain possibilities down the line, and having these vehicles on the road and understanding how they operate um, on on the road and with consumers on a daily basis is, is is incredibly important. So I do think they're probably step forwards. They're they're steps forward in their in their powertrain development uh, that are necessary and unto themselves. They're probably not making a lot of money, and they may even be losing uh, money on on these vehicles. But to work down the path of the evolution of the powertrain to some level of electrification. These are these are very sensible vehicles for them to have to have in, have in place. One one last quick question, going back to valuations for the moment. Uh, big pension liabilities still at GM Ford and the Chrysler part of FCA. Is that holding back their stock valuations too? And is this something that they should put on the negotiating table next round of contract negotiations with the UAW? You know, it's it's an interesting point. It's a risk that's not necessarily highlighted that often with investors at this point. Uh, Ford is almost uh, fully funded and neutralized its plan. GM is um, in much better shape than it has been historically, and Chrysler still has a, a small, you know, a small issue, but it's not necessarily um, as big an issue as it has been in the past. So, you know, historically, when you look at the enterprise value of these companies, you had pension and healthcare dominate better than 80% of the total value. At this point, they're much smaller potatoes in the grand scheme of, of the discussion. So, they're still an issue and certainly a risk factor, but not necessarily something that's sort of top of mind right now. And they've all done a pre- fairly good job of trying to fund them and, and top them up. So, I think it's something that it will always be on the table, but may always get pulled off the table. We'll see how it, how it goes. Real good. And thanks for the quick answer, too, because we've, we're going to have to wrap it up. John Murphy from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Joanne Muller from Forbes, Greg Gardner from the Detroit Free Press, thank you for being here as well. Thank you. And, of course, got to thank all of you for having tuned in. Underwriting for Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner.